Okay, let's begin in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 21 and verse 10. It says, When you go out to battle against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them away captive, and see among the captives a beautiful woman, and have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. Then you shall bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall also remove the clothes of her captivity, and shall remain in your house, and mourn her father and mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you are not pleased with her, then you shall let her go wherever she wishes. But you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her, because you have humbled her. So, when the people go out to battle, it is assumed when they go out to battle that God will give the enemy into your, their hands. In verse 10, the Lord your God delivers them into your hand. So, you win the battle by God's power and you take them captive. You win the power, battle, you take them captive, and you see a beautiful woman among the captives. This word for beautiful is the word that's used to describe Sarah in Genesis 12 when Abraham says, I know you're a beautiful woman and Pharaoh sees she's a beautiful woman. It's used to describe Rachel in Genesis 29. It's used to describe Esther in Esther 2. But you see a beautiful woman. You have a desire for her. You would take her as a wife. Now I want you to notice that in this relationship, the description of the relationship is a wife-husband relationship. She is not merely a concubine. She is described as a wife in verse 11 and in verse 13. And he is described as a husband in verse 13. And the text tells us that you see among the captives a beautiful woman, you have a desire for her, and would take her as a wife for yourself. What you must do, bring her to your house. She will shave her head and trim her nails. And I take it that this is a way for her to break with her former life. She shaves her head, she trims her nails, she removes the clothes of her captivity, and she is given 30 days, she's given a full month to mourn her father and mother. Now, those periods of mourning, pretty extensive, okay, we're running out uh, of marker here. And uh, I know this is probably not going to be visible to some of you, is it? Some of you can say, okay, mourning, but this, she is told that she can mourn her father and mother for 30 days. In Numbers 20, 29, it's the same amount of time they mourned Aaron. And it's the same amount of time they mourned Moses in Deuteronomy 34, verse 8. So, in these passages, this is a significant time to mourn for her. 
that, that she has. She mourns her father and mother who may well have been killed in battle. She mourns them and then he goes into her and she is his wife. Now, this may sound like to us that this is cruel and this is harsh. I think set against ancient Near Eastern practices and practices in warfare even these days, this is considered very gracious. And um, for example, often a woman taken in battle was a victim of rape right there and right then. The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about her being given 30 days to warn her parents. Then she is not simply someone to have sexual relations with. She is your wife and you are her husband. And in verse 14, when she leaves, she leaves as a free person. In verse 14, if you are not pleased with her, then she, and let her go wherever she wishes. You don't sell her for money. Uh, you shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. So, thank you, Josh, for that. But any questions right there, Sarah? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's treating, I don't think it's treating like an animal, but I don't know if it necessarily implies consent or not, Sarah. Um, I, what I would say is this, there are a couple of times in the Old Testament that I had in footnotes where people shaved their head after they were pronounced clean from having skin disease or leprosy. In Leviticus 14, verses 8 and 9. Also, in Numbers 6, verse 9, after one had fulfilled a Nazarite vow. So the idea may be more of a new beginning. Now, may she have been a willing partner in this? She may have been, but, but I don't know if it's implied simply in those, in those terms. Nina? Uh, that uses a different word as far as in 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 4. Okay, so that does use a different word. So is it the difference in a physical alluring beauty versus a Well, <laughs> I know, I, I think it's still a description of a physical beauty. And what you may not be hitting at, but let me go ahead and say it. It's the same question that we had the other day. Why is it they were told not to marry the local Canaanite girls, but they could marry in, or they could take the women uh, that they found from a city far away that they conquered in 20 verses 12, uh, 10 through 14, 20 verses 10 through 15. It's the same kind of thing here. They're seeing a beautiful woman from a foreign nation they are allowed to marry her. 
And I don't know exactly what to do with that except to say, as we said the other day, and some of you pointed out, I think, think Bob pointed out, that there's a level of corruption among the Canaanite women that may not have existed in all of these women. So, difficult to figure out completely. But let's look at verses 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then it shall be on the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the love the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. Now, four times there, the New American Standard uses the word... Well, let's run just a moment here. Okay. Let's... Uh, are we on a... Did you, did you take that? Yeah, I'm just messing with you. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. There you are. Okay. The unloved. How many of you have a different word? That's used four times. Twice in verse 15, in verse 16, verse 17. How many of you have a different word for that? In your translation, David? Okay, it literally is hate. Literally is hate. The word is used four times there, it is used hate. In this context, it is difficult to say what is the best translation. Because the word hated is more literal, the more the word unloved, I think, more conveys the sense of this word. So you can make an argument for either of those translations being better. This is the same word that is used in Genesis 29, verse 31 and 33, when the Bible tells us that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, comparatively unloved, and when she gives birth, to her second son, she says, the Lord has seen that I have, I am unloved. So it's the same words used in the Jacob, Rachel, Leah relationship. And the Lord sees that she, um, the Lord um, in that case saw that Rachel was unloved or Leah was unloved. But in this particular case, the man has two wives. The oldest child is a child of the woman that is loved less. While the, um, so he may, be, he may tend to give the birthright to a younger son that is a son of the loved woman. And God says, don't do that. But he acknowledges the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning 
of his strength. Now that word for double portion was used in the Old Testament. A double portion in 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 9 when Elisha asked for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And here it's used to talk about the inheritance that a father gives to his son. The oldest son got a double portion. Sometimes when I teach and preach on the prodigal son, we say the prodigal son would have gotten a third of his father's inheritance. The reason we say that, the father had two children, the younger, son, the older son is given a double portion, and so he would have been given two-thirds, and the youngest son, one-third. But um, what strikes me about this? is when you understand this law that God makes to protect the second wife or the less loved wife in this polygamous relationship. And he says you should not exalt the younger over the older. One thing that strikes me is how many times God does that in the Old Testament. God chooses the younger over the older. For example, you see a Jacob blessed over Esau in Genesis chapter 25. Uh, you see um, Ephraim blessed over Manasseh in Genesis 48. Uh, then David is the youngest of his brothers, and Solomon has many older brothers. But the Lord often does what he tells fathers here not to do. And I think that's a demonstration when we see that, that the Lord can bring about his will and his purposes through whomever he would, through whomever he desires. So we've talked about fathers and protecting the oldest son of an unloved wife in verses 15 through 17. But verses 18 through 21 is going to talk about parents and protecting their rights. Um, I, I did not have my portion of Malachi with me here. I think it is. I do think it is. But I would have to look it up. I will look it up if you, if you remind me. Bob, I mean, Mike. So, I so struggle with this section and other sections in the Old Testament that talks about the multiple Because, obviously, Jesus, the New Testament, says from the beginning it was not so. One man, one woman. You know, yes. Um, but yet... Yes. It is hard to, to figure out because I do not think it was the perfect, I don't think it was the ideal relationship from the beginning. For God could have made two or three wives for Adam, but instead he brings one and brings her to the man. So, so I, I do think that is the ideal. But you do see people in the Old Testament and some of the most 
noteworthy people of the Old Testament that had multiple wives. I would also say that it's some of those some of those sections of scripture that highlight how bad that is. It doesn't go very well much at most of the time. When Jacob marries sisters, Rachel and Leah, no problem could happen there, could it? Uh, well, uh, it does. They fight over uh, their man. And a couple of concubines are brought into the picture to make it even more difficult. And you see, with David's case, in 2 Samuel 11, it doesn't help lust. With all his wives and concubines, he still commits adultery. Some have said that the wives and concubines didn't really result in curbing lust but only uh, making it worse. And that may well be the case. Uh, That may just be a good preaching point from 2 Samuel 11, but it may be the case. But I think that God sometimes gave these provisions, and I don't know all the answers, but he gave these provisions because maybe a woman in the ancient world would have been better off being the second lesser wife than she would have been married. Now, that's not true in all societies, but that was true in that society. I think that may be the purpose behind it. Now, someone had a hand up through here. Okay, I answered it. Okay, go ahead. I'm wondering if both of the passage about the Philistines and the two lives, God is aware that people will want to do this thing, and so he sets these parameters you're going to do this here are do it humanely, I think. That's kind of a he does give he does give instructions um, telling how to act You know, what we have to understand too is for example, you know, uh, the Shaw of Ireland, 1979, guilty of human rights abuses. We remove him from power. No problem with Iran. And I can use it on the level of some college football teams. They get mad at their coach and they fire him. When you fire him, you better have somebody better in mind to replace him as soon as you go from a bad coach to a worse coach. What I'm trying to suggest by that is. What are the alternatives in this world? What are the alternatives? I think that has to be taken some into consideration, though we don't know nor get an exact feel for all that was like. But we do know that often in those days when a person had no kind of family to take care of them, as they got older, it was a very difficult service. Would would a uh, like Leverett wife situation? Uh, that could have been one like, case. Would a would a younger brother, if he was already married, be still required to to give offspring to his deceased older brother? By so, and I guess technically, technically, he would, he would still have two wives at that point. Too. 
Yes, Deuteronomy 25, which which talks about that, and but there is able to do that if he's not married. No, there's no limitation put on the context. There's nothing said about his marital status when you see that. So that, and that, so that might be a legitimate situation where sure God is allowing for that. That is that is a legitimate situation. And along that line, Tony, so as people ask the question about uh, Boaz, and I had a question, a woman asked him once, "Well, Boaz, such is a great edge." as he seems to be. Why wasn't he already married? And I said, we don't know that he wasn't. We don't know that absolutely, certainly. So, you know, we don't know that. And um, that kind of burst that lady's bubble. I mean, she had Boaz up on this. But, but anyway, um, uh, Deuteronomy 21. Bob, go ahead. Yes. Yes. He, he, he could have absolutely forbidden it and does in a couple of cases in Deuteronomy 22. But he does not across the board. But he does give laws regulating it. And to figure out why he was doing what he was doing is not easy to understand. But it is a concession to man's sinfulness and weakness uh, that God tries to regulate these sinful relationships. Yes, that, that is part of it as well. The nation is increasing in number so that they will be a great nation. But I, I, good questions, uh, some difficult to answer. But after he talked about the parents and their responsibilities, look at the children in 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear of it and be afraid. Now, the word shamah, hear or listen, is used four times in this account. It's used in 21.18, and it's translated both listen, both obey, and listen. In verse 20, it is translated there obey. In verse 21, it is translated here. But the son will not obey. He will not listen. And after he will not listen, even after he is chastened, you to bring him to the elders of the city. And you declare that this our son will not listen to us. He will not obey us. And he's a glutton and drunkard. Ultimately, when he is put to death, when he is executed, when he's stoned, the Bible says that all Israel shall hear. He did not hear. He did not listen in these first three instances. But in the last instance, 
all the other people will listen and all the other people will hear and all the other people will take warning because of it. They will hear and fear. They'll hear it and fear. Now, um, let's look at some things in this passage. This, our son, he is twice referred to here as stubborn, he is stubborn and rebellious. He's referred to that way in verse 18 and in verse 20. We're not going to fully get into those terms yet. We want to come back to them in just a moment. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and drunkard. Now, a couple of things. Notice in verse 19, both the father and mother were to work together on this. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him to the elders of the city of the gate. Apparently to have one parent involved was not enough, was not adequate in this case. You must have dual participation of both father and mother because this is a very serious thing. So his father and mother have to be working together in this. And they say to the elders of the city, uh, this son of ours is rebellious and stubborn and will not obey us. And uh, by the way, the word um, chastise that's used in verse 18, uh, when they chastise him, he will not listen. That word has been used of God's relationship to Israel. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 8 verse 5, for example, the Bible says, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Now that word discipline used twice in Deuteronomy 8 verse 5. Same word used right here in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 18. They chastise him. He will not listen. And uh, they declare this. Now, how many times in the historical books of the Old Testament do we see this penalty executed? How many times? How many examples can you think of in the Old Testament where you see that executed? Okay, Josh got it right. Zero. Nowhere do you see that in the game. Um, Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I don't know. But I'll tell you this. I know in watching Unsolved Mysteries in 48 Hours. <laughs> when I used to watch those today. You had examples of husbands killing wives and more often wives killing husbands. I think that's what made me stop watching. <laughs> <laughs> and you have children killing parents. But I don't remember an example of parents killing children. There may be one that I saw that I forgot. But you don't see this apply. Now, as Tony asked, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't know, but we're going to come back to it in a moment. But I will say this. Doesn't it show you 
how serious it is to have the proper family relationship. Now, I'm not trying to take advantage of a Christ. And I am not trying to run for all. How many, how many of these mass shooters have come from stable homes? How many of them have come from stable homes? It is a very serious thing what happens in our homes because it affects all kinds of people. Maybe all kinds of people are children just baptized into their interaction. But the very fact they have normal interactions with them might be the result of something good that happened in our home. But as severe as this sounds, I imagine if this difficult principle was practiced, ultimately it will result in the saving of more lives than if we let people go unchecked. But I'm not through with that passage. But I want to look at verses 22 and 23. In verses 22 and 23, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. But you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, when you look at this particular case, a person is committed a crime worthy of death. In the next chapter, we will find when a woman is the victim of rape, in 22 verse 26, it says there is no sin in the girl worthy of death. She's not done something worthy of death. But here, this one has done something worthy of death. What the crime is, we are not told. We are simply tell it, told it is a capital offense. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. Is this, is this death by hanging on a tree? Hanging? Or is the person already condemned and then hanged up as an example of what happens to all sinners? Which is it? Seems to me it's the latter. It seems to me if he's committed something worthy of death and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you hang him on a tree as an example. This is what happens to those who disobey, to those who are rebellious, to those who are sinful. It serves as a warning. But his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree. You have to take his body down that day. Now think about the case in Genesis 40. And Joseph interprets the dreams in prison in Genesis 40. And, and, and he interprets the dream of the, the cupbearer. That in three days you're going to put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But then the baker comes with his dreams of having the different baskets 
of, of bread on his head. And the birds are coming and picking it out. He said, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and you will be hung upon a tree and the birds will eat your flesh. Does it seem like in Egypt it was a practice to take their bodies down that day? No. They left their bodies hanging and exposed. God says no. He said you can use them as a warning to others, but the corpse has to be taken down by that night and then you bury him because if you don't it defiles the land now let's look at a couple of cases where Israel practiced this even uh, to the enemies in the land of Canaan look at Joshua 8 in Joshua 8 in verse 29 the Bible says he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones and it stands to this day. That's Joshua 8 and verse 29. The same kind of thing we are told in Joshua 10 verses 26 and 27. Afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. And it came about at sunset that Joshua commanded, and they took down, they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hidden. Okay? So there's a couple of practices where that's executed. Curse is the man who hangs on a tree. Here are some people in the Old Testament who died on a tree. Chief Baker in Genesis 40 in verse 19. King of Ai, the five kings of Canaan who fought against the Gibeonites. We just dealt with those. Do you know every time the book of Esther uses the word gallows, that it is our word here for tree, Big Fanna and Parish died on a tree in Esther 2, verse 23. And Haman, even though he had prepared the tree or the gallows for Mordecai, he ended up being hanged on the tree. And so did his ten sons. Now, how many of those characters? Not trying to any of those characters would you want to be in judgment that? Curse is the one who hangs on a tree. Now there are a couple of other cases that are similar to that. Absalom was riding on his animal and he gets his head caught in the oak. And as he's hanging there helplessly, Joel comes and strikes him down. And there's another person in the New Testament that's humbling a tree. Judas. And yet, the New Testament uses this verse and applies it to Jesus. Galatians 3 verse 13. The Bible says, 
that Christ... Well, let me just read what it says. Galatians 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, you may say, Oh, Deuteronomy 21 wasn't talking about death by hanging on a tree. No, it was talking about exposure of the body afterwards. It wasn't talking about death by crucifixion. And no, it wasn't. But... There are examples from the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are examples from Josephus and Philo where they speak of people being hung on trees as dying under God's curse. They made the application that if you were crucified, you're dying under the curse of God. How was it the Jewish Messiah died that way? Paul says we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness. How is it the Jewish Messiah could die this way? Because he was cursed for us. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now in these passages the Bible uses the word tree. The American standard may use the word cross. But it emphasizes that Jesus died on a tree. In Acts 5.30 Acts 10, 39, Acts 13, 29, here in Galatians 3, 13, and also 1 Peter chapter 2 in verse 24. All of these speak of Jesus' death as dying on a tree. Some of them also use the same Greek word for hanging that this verse uses. We talked about Haman. Haman, maybe he stayed up all night preparing the gallows for innocent Mordecai. He wanted to hang the innocent upon the tree. But when he goes in to ask the king to take Mordecai's life, the king wants to know how he can bless Mordecai. And it ends out at the end of the day, Haman, the guilty, is hanged on the tree instead of innocent Mordecai. What happens here is the opposite of that. When we had sinned, when we had done wrong, when we had been foolish, he's the innocent who hangs on a tree instead of us. That we could be saved. Now, I told you, I wanted to come back to those words, stubborn and rebellious. Both of them are words that are not very found very often in the Old Testament. Southern is used only about 17 times, rebellious about 45 times. But there are several instances where they're used together that I think are interesting. I'm talking about using the word stubborn, the words rebellious together. They're used in the same text in Psalm 78, in verse 8. In Jeremiah 5, in verse 23, and in Nehemiah 9, verse 26, and verse 29. Now, let me tell you the reason I picked out those passages. Those passages 
are all describing the nation of Israel. And the Bible says the nation of Israel was stubborn and rebellious. Now think about this. God doesn't pronounce the full sentence deserved by his stubborn, rebellious child, son, Israel. And that relationship is described as a father-son relationship. He doesn't execute the full sentence on the guilty, stubborn, rebellious child. But upon the innocent and sinless child, He dies on a tree under God's curse. It is an overwhelming statement to us of the mercy and the grace of God. And you find it in the Psalms, in the prophets. And in the law, you find it all through the Old Testament as well as the New. And to think about the shame of the cross, as Deuteronomy 21, again verse 23 To die on the cross is to die under the curse of God. Thompson said in his commentary on Deuteronomy, Jesus bore the shame that every executed criminal bore as he experiences God's curse. What, what questions do you have right there? What thoughts? Anything, Sarah? Jabez Gilead bring them down. First Samuel thirty-one, First Chronicles ten record that. But you're right. We already talked about the Egyptians exposing dead bodies, the Philistines exposed dead bodies. It was a common practice we find from their writings that the Assyrians, for example, did this. Uh, We know the Romans did this in New Testament times. But in contrast to all of that stands, and again, I think that reminds us that, that God's laws so much more humane than anything else you see from the ancient world. You know, God uh, said to bring their bodies down. It's good to teach a lesson from them, but you've got a day. 
and at the end of that day take it down and maybe that also increased their respect for life if they don't leave that body dangling there. Now remember too when Jesus was crucified in John 19.31 the Jews because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. So their bo- his body was taken down by night. His, his death fits the picture of Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 in multiple ways. Yes. He, the text says the person has committed a crime worthy of death. I'm trying to remember and see if I have this in my notes that uh, remember Pilate says he has done nothing worthy of death. In Luke 23 verse 4, verse 14 and verse 22. So you're right. Now, there is a stark uh, contrast between the death of Christ and uh, the death of this one described in Deuteronomy 21. Now, Bob had said he wanted to go cover 23 and 24. I guess he was expecting me to give it all a 22 tonight, so we got five minutes. Um, In verses 1 through 4, you shall not see your countryman's ox or sheep strain away and pay no attention to it. You shall certainly bring them back to your countrymen. Do any of your translations have something different for your countrymen? Your brother. Your brother. I think the term is used six times in these first four verses. You shall not see your countrymen, your brother's ox, sheep strain, and pay no attention. Verse 2. If your brother, your countryman, is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall remain with you until your countryman looks for it, and then you shall restore it to him. Thus you shall do with his donkey, and you shall go, you shall do the same with his garment. You shall do likewise with anything lost by your countrymen of which he lost and you have found you're not allowed to neglect them. You shall not see your brother or countryman's ox or donkey fallen in the way and pay no attention to it. You shall certainly help him to raise them up. Now, this statement, if your brother's ox or donkey is going astray if he loses a garment or whatever, you seek to bring it back to him if you can't find him or you don't even know who he is. Or if he lives a long way away, hold it till he gets there and then return it. This is also stated in Exodus 23 in verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23 verses 4 and 5. There it doesn't say brother. There it says enemy. If your enemy's ox or your enemy's donkey is going astray, you return it to him. You treat your enemy the same way you treat your brother. And that may be a process of breaking down that animosity between brothers. But you can't simply ignore it. You pay attention to it. You don't leave it there under its burden. You help to raise it up. In verse 5, a woman 
shall not wear a man's clothing, nor a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. God's intention was to keep men and women separate and distinct. God created them male and female. He created them male and female in Genesis 1. And he did not want that confused. A person who wrestles with that. A person who is wrestling with this problem. Maybe they, they truly, this is a temptation to them. We're not trying to mock them or hold them up for ridicule. And we're not going to imitate the world that seeks to celebrate them. We're going to try to help them to understand what God wants them to be. That God wants, God has a role for men, God has a role for women. And those roles are not to be confused. And in watching the video the other day, I saw something that really struck me. One who was defending women preachers made some arguments that sounded a lot like people who are trying to knock down any kind of distinction between men and women. The point is, maybe some in churches have helped pave the way for this. I know the Bible tells us we're all equal before God in sense. And there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female. Galatians 3, verse 28. But that doesn't mean there's not an objective definition of a male and a female and roles that God would have them to fulfill. And the fact that sometimes in our society we've, we've stationed something, you know, as a man's role and a woman's role, and that those things... I mean, it's nothing wrong with a man who likes to cook and to enjoy to cook. But there's still a distinct role for male and female. And God intends these to be kept distinct. And may God help us to appreciate His Word in this respect. I, I want to tell you something.